Well, the passage that we have today is probably one of the most difficult passages that we're going to wrestle with throughout our entire series on Luke. In fact, it's one of the most difficult passages that exists in the entire Bible. And there's no shortage of interpretations and opinions and convictions on what a lot of this passage means. I'm sure that even in the room right now, there is a wide range of views about what this could possibly mean. It's been the source of frustration and argument and division in many churches. Churches have split, families have split, friends have split. People have thrown their entire lives away because of deeply held convictions about this passage. So, in light of all of the controversy and all of the intricacies of this passage, uh, for some reason Dan and Luke didn't want to teach it, so they decided they'd ask the new guy to do it. Uh, So hopefully we can get through this together. At the onset, I want to be as transparent as I possibly can. I have a high degree of confidence in what some of this means, and an even higher degree of uncertainty in what even more of it means. And when it comes to issues of eschatological significance or the end times, my position, as I'm sure with many of you and it has been with the pastors, it has shifted over time as we study it more and more. And I'm sure if you gave me a couple of more years to study the depth of eschatology, I could come back with a different position two years from now. So because of that, because a lot of different arguments, a lot of different interpretations can make sense, I think we have to exercise a degree of what Albert Muller calls theological triage. Triage is a term I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Doctors and nurses triage patients all the time. Parents have to triage the needs of their kids at any given moment. In an emergency room, a broken leg is not as important as a gunshot wound, and a skinned knee is not as urgent as a broken leg. Not all urgent things are important, and not all important things are urgent. So it takes a degree of discernment to work through this, and that's the case with theological triage. We have to be able to scale and balance the urgency and importance of the theological data in front of us in light of the entire breadth of Scripture and in light of its relationship to the gospel. In his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, Gavin Ortland provides a very helpful framework for thinking through theological triage. He breaks doctrines down into four basic categories. First-ranked doctrines are those that are essential to the gospel itself. If you deviate on these first-rank doctrines, it would be hard for anybody to call you a Christian. Things would, like, that would fall in this category would be the Trinity, or salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then there are second-ranked doctrines. These are urgent for the health and practice of the church, and they often cause Christians to separate at the level of local church or denomination or even across ministry lines. One example of this would include baptism. You know, are you a credo Baptist? Do you, do you practice believer's baptism? That's what we practice here. Or do you practice pedo-baptism? Do you baptize infants? That is an issue in which churches rightfully separate on. Third-ranked doctrines are important to Christian theology but not enough to justify separation and division among Christians. Third-rank issues would include things such as the millennium or the rapture, or most things having to do with end times interpretation. Fourth-rank doctrines are unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. These are things that are 
exciting to think about. They're intellectually stimulating, but they're just not all that important theologically. Things like, what kind of instruments should we or shouldn't we use in church? We're really bad Baptists because we have drums, but it's a, it's a fourth-rank issue that we've arrived at that conviction on. You know, or how many angels did God create? You know, it's, it's fun to think about, but it doesn't have any real gospel implications. What theological triage seeks to avoid is what can be called doctrinal sectarianism or doctrinal minimalism. Doctrinal sectarianism is the error that leads to a lot of unnecessary arguments and values truth at the expense of unity. Fundamentalist thinking has the tendency to fall into this camp by holding to the belief that all issues are first-order salvation issues. This causes a lot of harm and division among believers and churches. Doctrinal minimalism is the ditch on the other side of the road, which reduces the value of all doctrine down to third and fourth rank issues and denying that there is even such a thing as a first rank issue. This is the error of theological liberalism, treating all doctrines as if they were third and fourth rank for the sake of a superficial unity, typically unity with the secular world. And so I want to ask before we get into all of this, are you the kind to put truth on the altar of some sort of false unity and ignore the implications of rejecting core truths of the gospel? Or do you sacrifice charity and grace when it comes to issues of lesser importance and choose to divide needlessly over them? If we swing too far one way or the other, it will destroy the church. So if we're going to try and remain balanced, gracious, and united, the goal would be to see all of this end-time stuff here as a third-rank issue. There are probably even some fourth-rank issues at play. And I honestly wrestled all week with how much into the weeds I wanted to get with this. John MacArthur took 12 weeks to explain his view on Luke 21. We get one week. And I think that you probably need 24 weeks with John MacArthur because his view is all over the place. But I think if we use a approach this passage with a measure of grace and charity and love, we can disagree at the end of the day about some of the specifics, but still have a high degree of gospel unity. So to outline our time, I want us to look at the following. First, the prophecy. Second, the problem. Third, an interpretation and some challenges. Fourth, what it means for us today. First, let's look at the prophecy. I want to reset the table here of what's going on in the passage. We're spending 14 weeks this summer covering roughly one week of Jesus's life. It's Passover week, and the tensions are already high between Rome and the Jews. This particular year, Rome has added tons of extra soldiers to police the city because tensions are running high. On Sunday of Holy Week, Jesus enters the city very publicly and takes on the mantle of Messiah, knowing that this would put him in the crosshairs of both the Jewish and Roman leaders. On Monday of the week, he makes himself public enemy number one by clearing out the temple of all the money changers and people selling animals at extravagant rates. And now we find ourselves in Tuesday of what's called Holy Week. Before he begins this prophecy, he's already had his authority challenged, destroys that challenge, has two traps set before him, eviscerates the Pharisees and the scribes in them, gives them a question they can't possibly answer in light of how badly they misunderstand who the Messiah is, then Jesus rebukes them all for their false piety and devastation of their widows. And we learn from Matthew's account of this incident that Jesus and his disciples were on their way out of the temple. So we pick up in Luke 21, 5. 
Some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. He said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Picking up at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. Those who are in the country must not enter it. Because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there's not a little at play here. There's a lot to unpack. But I think if we take it bit by bit, hopefully we can make sense of this all together. I think we want to start with the most plain and obvious thing that Jesus is saying. The most obvious part of the prophecy is that both the temple and Jerusalem would fall. This would have been an absolutely wild thing for the people to hear. The city of Jerusalem was thought to be impenetrable. It had walls that were 40 feet high and 40 feet deep surrounding it on all sides. The temple itself was also thought to be utterly indestructible. It was a little over 1.5 million square feet large. It was made out of stones that weighed 160,000 pounds that were single stone was 40 foot long and seven foot wide. This structure was absolutely massive. So in their mind, nobody could even get into the city, let alone destroy the temple. What would have made this prediction even more radical is that Jesus predicts it's the, the place where the Jews believed God dwelled with them would be destroyed. They were in their mind the city and the people of God. And that Jesus, the Messiah, was just a tool of God to come in and lead them to a political victory over Rome. That's why they welcomed him the way that they did. They believed that they were receiving their Messiah. But Old Testament scholar J. Daniel Hayes points this out. Recall that back in 587, as the Babylonians approached as part of God's judgment on disobedient Jerusalem, the presence of God departed from the temple. You can read about this in Ezekiel 8 through 11. Then, when the second temple is built, there is no mention of the return of the presence of God to dwell in the temple. The presence of God does not return to the temple until Jesus Christ walks through its gates. So the reality of the situation was not that a political Messiah was coming into their place of worship to announce victory over Rome, but rather it was God himself coming into the previously godless temple. And like Jeremiah warned in the Old Testament, if the people and priests of Jerusalem continued to make the temple a den of robbers and don't repent, the temple would be destroyed because of their own wickedness. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. Under General Titus, the Roman army invaded Jerusalem and utterly devastated the city and the temple. What was once a lush green city was reduced to a desert. Jewish historian Josephus records it like this in his book, The War of the Jews. Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. And the seditious were still more irritated by the calamities they were under. Even while the famine preyed upon themselves, after it had preyed upon the people, 
And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench and was a hindrance to those who would make sallies out of the city and fight the enemy. But those were to go into battle array who had been already used to 10,000 murders and must tread upon those dead bodies as they marched along, so were not they terrified, nor did they pity men as they marched over them, nor did they deem this affront offered to the deceased to be any ill omen to themselves. But as they had their right hands already polluted with the murders of their own countrymen, and in that condition ran out to fight with foreigners, they seemed to me to have cast a reproach upon God himself, as if he were too slow to punishing them. For the war was not now gone on as if they had any hope of victory. For they gloried after a brutish manner in that despair of deliverance they were already in. And that's a very bleak description coming from somebody who lived through the destruction of Jerusalem and saw the destruction of the temple firsthand. And we could spend a long time unpacking the implications of that, how it would affect Jewish life in that day and how it all played out leading up to the destruction of the temple. But the main thing to understand, though, is that this actually happened in the year 70 AD. This part of the prophecy actually happened, and it's not all that problematic. Where the real problem comes in is at the end of the discussion. It's not all Jesus says. The end of the discussion about the destruction of the temple, Jesus says this, Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear in expectation of the things that are coming on the world. Because the powers of the heavens will be shaken, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads, because your redemption is near. And herein lies the problem. There seems to be a major departure here from the destruction of the temple to the second coming of Christ. And the reason this gets really complicated is because of verse 32, in which Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not, certainly not pass away until these things take place. And this one line has been the source of much controversy, many headaches, and much division over the centuries. If Jesus didn't say this generation will certainly not pass, it wouldn't be that difficult. Now we could say, yes, the temple was destroyed and now we wait. But he described his return with it. And then he said, surely this generation will not pass. We have to deal with it now. And attempts have been made to do so over the years. And at the risk of being way too reductionistic, There have been basically four views that have developed here as it pertains to what's described both here and the events of the book of Revelation. Really quick, there's the preterist view that says all of these events happened between Christ's first coming and the writing of Revelation. So it's all already happened. There's also the historicist view, which claims that these events will happen sequentially between the writing of Revelation and the return of Christ. The futurist view holds that all of these events will happen just before the return of Christ. And finally, the sequentialist view states that all of these events happen in parallel between the first and second coming. And for those of you who have spent much more time unpacking issues of eschatology, I'm sorry for how overly simplistic that is. But as you can see, 
Each of those views comes with their own strengths and their own weaknesses. Now, hopefully you can see why they all fall into the category of a third-rank doctrine. So how do we interpret this? I'm going to give you my best shot. Well, first, we have to agree that the prophecy is not less than the actual physical destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. If we can't agree there, we're not going to agree on a whole lot going forward. One of the more helpful things in understanding this passage for me has been looking closely at the language at play. I think the phrase, these things, is much more important than I first thought. To do that, I want to look at Matthew's account as a part of our consideration. Starting in Matthew 24, verse 1. As Jesus left and was going out of the building, out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? In both accounts, whether the disciples knew that they were doing it or not, we see that there are two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? When Jesus answers, I believe that he is giving two distinct but related and escalating answers. First, he answers the question, when will these things happen? Whenever Jesus refers to these things, he seems to be answering the question of the destruction of the temple. This, I believe, is what the, he is warning about in Luke 21, 8 through 24. We see the phrase show up in verses 9, 12, and 22. In verse 25, Jesus seems to switch to his return when he says, then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And understanding it this way provides some helpful clarity to to Jesus saying in the parable of the fig tree that this generation will certainly not pass away until these things take place. The structure of the narrative here is that Jesus revisits the first question every time he uses the phrase, these things. He emphasizes that the destruction of the temple will take place during this generation, a period of about 40 years. So the people who heard it would be alive when it happened. There have been a lot of mental gymnastics done to try and interpret generation as a type of person, a type of wicked person, a type of Jewish person, or that it means the Jewish age, Jewish age giving way to the church age. And there's some merit to some of it, but that doesn't jive all that well with all of the other times Jesus and the other authors of scripture use the phrase generation to mean a 40-year time period. And I want to go a little bit further and say that the biblical precedent of promises and prophecies having escalating fulfillments would tell us that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is just the first horizon of fulfillment of the whole passage. And that it serves as a type or a picture of the worldwide destruction that will occur when Jesus returns. When we read our Bibles, we see that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. We see in Scripture that so many of the promises and prophecies of God have multiple horizons of fulfillment. And what's more, each successive fulfillment is not only later in time chronologically, but greater in significance both theologically and historically. One example that illustrates the multiple horizons and ever greater character of God's promise-keeping is God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. 
passage says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God promises a childless Abraham will be the father of a great nation that will bless the nations of the earth. A few verses later, he promises to give Abraham's offspring the land of Canaan. Now let's consider how this was fulfilled. First, there's the miraculous birth of Isaac, who has Jacob, who has 12 sons. Those sons have many, many children. And by the opening of Exodus, there's so many Jewish people the Pharaoh's intimidated by them and enslaves them. And Joshua recounts the story of how the nation of Israel conquered the land of Canaan. And by the time of King Solomon, the nation is prospering greatly. And of course, Jesus is the true promise offspring of Abraham. Paul makes that very clear in Galatians and in Romans. And by faith in Jesus, men and women from every nation are blessed as they become children of Abraham. They become a spiritual nation that spreads to the very ends of the earth. But like Abraham, we find ourselves again as aliens and strangers. But there's still more to come. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where we will all be a great nation of all God's people under God's rule. So how many times was God's promise to Abraham fulfilled? I count at least seven, all clearly identified in Scripture, and each time greater than the time before it. So when we read a passage of Scripture that contains a prophecy, we want to see where and how it's fulfilled throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. And so, at least I believe it is with our passage today. The first horizon of fulfillment was the destruction of the temple, an act of judgment on wicked and rebellious Israel. And the point of Jesus telling us in Luke 21 or Matthew 24 and Mark 13 about his second coming is to tell us that, like all of the promises of God throughout history, we are making our way towards a greater, ultimate, eternal fulfillment. We have to factor in what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and how we understand both the destruction of the temple and his return in the, this passage. I just want to look at it briefly because so much of the concept in this passage will be looked at next week. But it does say, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way of the coming of the Son. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what the day. Your, what day your Lord is coming. So Jesus gave us a definite timeline for the destruction of the temple when he answered the question, when will these things take place? He told us it would happen within that generation, which it did. He tells us that it would be visible, eminent, and obvious. The city would be surrounded, and they would see the threat from miles away. But when it comes to the second coming, 
The question of what will be the sign of your coming, Jesus, in the book of Matthew, appeals to the account of the flood. He tells us that not even he knows when, but that it will be violent, destructive, and sudden, just like the flood. Which is why it is dangerous to try and put too much weight on any one particular interpretation of Luke 21 and the parallel accounts that don't simply agree that the temple will be destroyed and that eventually Jesus will return and that we have to stay ready. Consider the example of Harold Camping. Harold Camping was a Christian radio broadcaster who spent much of his ministry on trying to interpret passages like Luke 21, Matthew 24, and the book of Revelation and come up with an exact date of Christ's return. He became so consumed with trying to get a date right that he had to do some pretty incredible mental gymnastics and deny some very basic doctrines, like the doctrine of hell. And he claimed that all churches are apostate and that nobody should be a part of them. He made several predictions about when Christ would return, but most famously, he said that Jesus would return May 21st, 2011. This caused panic among many thousands of people who considered themselves Christians, even in town here. We saw people walking around with signs advocating this view. Thousands of people quit their jobs, cashed out their retirement, stopped paying their bills, all because they bought into this. They thought the day was coming. Now, obviously, the world didn't end on May 21st, or I missed something, but I'm pretty sure that it didn't happen. And Harold Camping isn't the only person to have made these kinds of claims. In the 1970s, Hal Lindsey released a book called The Late Great Planet Earth and emphasized that the 70s were the era of the Antichrist and that Jesus would more than likely return in the 1980s. And even more recently, Pat Robertson, founder of the 700 Club, said that Russia was compelled by God to invade Ukraine in preparation of a massive end times invasion of Israel. The examples could go on and on. But this just highlights why we have to be careful. This is why we can't make so many issues of eschatology a first-rank issue and divide over it. Instead, we need to take what's obvious and be charitable and faithful in our study of the rest and learn what we can. So to end, I want to look at what this passage teaches us about how we ought to live today. Even though prophecy has future events in mind, it always has implications for how we ought to live right now. Believe that there are at least four things for us to take away. First, we're given a reminder. The temple was a place where the people of God went to worship God. We're told that there is a day coming when the whole thing will be destroyed. This doesn't mean that the worship of God comes to an end. What it tells us is that the temple is no longer necessary. Consider 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are now the temple of God. Jesus promises us that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the same God who dwelt in the tabernacle, who dwelt in the first temple, will no longer dwell in a stone building, but in our very hearts. And we're being built up, not as individuals, but as believers together in the church. So we're reminded here that the temple that Jesus is concerned with is us. We are the house that the Lord wants to be beautiful. But we miss that, don't we? 
Can't we be distracted like the disciples were? I don't know if you caught their distraction. They had just witnessed Jesus giving a series of incredible, rich, powerful theological discourses. And on their way out of the temple, they're like, wow, Jesus, aren't these stones cool? Like, look at these curtains. Aren't they dope? There's so much gold and grapes and leeks. They talk about leeks a lot. Like, like, that's what you want to talk to Jesus about on the way out? It's fairly obvious that we're in the middle of a renovation here. It's a really exciting thing. A lot of really hard work has been put into the design and construction of it all. And I'm sure that throughout our time here tonight, many of you have checked out mentally and looked around and thought, this place is going to be awesome when it's all done. And it will be. It's a great thing to have a beautiful space to worship in. However, it can't be the main thing. Because at the end of the day, it's just a building. God doesn't dwell here in a special way like he did the first temple or the tabernacle. He dwells here because he dwells in us. You know, what if this building was modeled after your heart? What would it look like? Is it a place that you would be excited about the presence of God entering? Or is it a place you would be ashamed of him to enter? Do you realize that that's the reality of our situation as Christians? Before we came to know Christ, our lives were just like the second temple, adorned with all sorts of things, but full of deceit and corruption and void of the presence of God. By birth and by choice, we have rebelled against the Lord. But Jesus came to pay the full cost of your sin, of my sin, And his promise that we will receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And the place where the Holy Spirit will dwell is in our hearts. So if you're here and you profess to be a Christian, are you honoring the Lord in your heart? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify your thoughts, your actions, and to conform you into the image of Christ? Or is your heart so full of anything and everything else that there's simply no room for him. Next, we receive an admonition from Christ. When Jesus answers the question about when, he tells us, watch out that you are not deceived. We're told to be on guard against all kinds of deception. There were many false messiahs that attempted to lead Israel. And in our day, there are so many people who claim to be Christians and teach all sorts of false ideas about Christ. Many will come and say that the end is coming right now. We already looked at some of these predictions. And it's not just false messiahs, false teachings, and predictions. We're also told to watch out for persecutions. Jesus doesn't allow for us to think that association with him will be a life of rainbows and butterflies and sunshine. That's not what we signed up for. It's not what we're invited to. We're invited to war. We're in the midst of one of the most radical cultural shifts that we've ever seen as a country. And the more tightly we hold to a biblical worldview and a biblical ethic, we will be accused all the more of being ignorant and intolerant and bigoted. Ironically, with language that is itself ignorant, intolerant, and bigoted. 
While it's true that none of us face the death penalty right now for claiming the name of Christ, like so many do in other countries, we will increasingly be at risk of losing our jobs, our reputations, our relationships. If we're surprised by this, then we're already deceived. Next, Jesus gives us an exhortation. Look at verse 13. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. The exhortation is this. Be prepared to bear the scorn of Christ. There is something that the youngest of you will face in a way that so many of us never have. Many of us grew up in a culture that was at least Christian adjacent. For many years, the default assumption was that Christianity was mainstream, both in terms of our social structures, our political structures, and our moral structures. But we know that's just not the case. That definitely hasn't been the case with many millennials and especially Gen Z. It's the fastest growing group of non-believers, people with no exposure to church, no exposure to scripture that has ever been. And this isn't necessarily a failure of either of those generations. It's a failure of all Christians to not count the cost of following Christ and not passing on the importance of counting the cost to the next generation. So I ask, have you done this? Have you really counted the cost of following Christ. And having counted the cost, are you filling your mind and your heart with the truths of God's word? Truths like salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, that there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation, that Christ must be Lord of your life. The promise given to us in this exhortation is that when we are called upon to give witness to the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit will give us words and wisdom. And finally, we're given an encouragement in verse 18. It says, but not a hair of your head will be lost. Now, obviously, that's not literally true. Uh, Looking around at some of you, some of you have lost hairs on your head. It also just told us that some of us will die. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer physical harm, loss, or even death doesn't mean that we won't lose our jobs, reputations, or families. What we're promised that for those who are found ready and who have repented of their own self-righteousness from their own corruption and wickedness and have put their faith in the work of Christ, the work of Christ upon the cross where the full wrath of God, which we deserve, was poured out on Christ, faith in the resurrection of Christ, a sign of the eternal, that the eternal death that we are headed toward, if left to our own devices, has been defeated. The heart of the encouragement is that we will, in the end, receive a physical, eternal resurrection and enjoy our glorious union with Christ for all eternity in glory in the city and the temple which God has prepared for all who belong to him. It'll be like that great hymn on Jordan's Stormy Bank says, No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed.
for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. Let's pray. Lord God, help us be ready. Help us to examine our hearts. Help us to not be distracted by the world. Help us to not sacrifice the truth of your gospel. Lord, stir up our hearts so that we look forward to the day of your return. Give us grace to reach those who don't know you, Lord. God, I pray that anybody here who is still holding on to their life, holding on to their sin, hasn't repented, Lord, that you would take hold of their hearts, that you would share your great love for them, the great love that you showed when you poured out your wrath on Christ, and the free gift of eternal life that is available by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.